It'd be easy to preach last week's message and these next three messages in one, but rather than doing that, we're just taking the time to slow down and really glean all we can from these passages. And so um, we're going to read a a little bit more than what we're actually going to cover just to kind of set the context. So if you found your place in Galatians chapter 5, if you'll stand in honor of God's word, then we're going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 16, and we'll just be covering uh, verses 19 through 21. But we'll begin our reading in verse number 16 of Galatians chapter 5. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. In other words, when you've got the Spirit of God working in your life and you're choosing to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, then that Holy Spirit is going to do far more work on your behalf than what the law could ever do in terms of righteousness. So let's look at verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and just in case there's anything else you can think of, such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the title of our message for tonight is this, The Fallen Look of a Fleshly Life. So may God bless you in his word. You can be seated. We'll give consideration to that thought tonight. On a daily basis, there are tough choices that we've got to make. I think it starts when you first wake up. Do I get out of bed or do I hit the snooze? If anybody else struggles with that, you're not alone. (laughs) And so that's the first choice that you got to make. And then you might get out of bed and you go to your closet and you're looking through it and you're saying, okay, what do I wear today? You know, with guys, it's not as much a big a deal, but ladies really go through that. And, you know, there are times when my wife will like have clothes strung out all over the place trying to figure out what goes with what and what shoes to wear with what. And so... That can be a real tough choice. Now, if you work at a place like I worked at, Sherwin-Williams, and you've got a uniform, then it's very simple. There's not much choice. It's khakis and a blue shirt with the logo on it. But if you work somewhere else, then you might have to sort through, what am I going to wear here? You might wake up a little bit early, and you say, you know what, I've got some time to read my Bible. Do I read my Bible, or do I go into work and get a few extra minutes of pay? What do I do there? It's a tough choice. And then uh, you might go out to lunch, and you're thinking, do I get Qdoba or do I get Chipotle, which is better? Or do I get Cafe Mexicali or do I get Nopalitos or Illegal Pete's? You know, they got all these different burrito places here where there's just like too many options. Which one do I go with? Starbucks or Ozo or Ziggy's or the Laughing Goat is where I went with Josh Beverly a couple weeks ago, and it was really good, or last weekend, I guess. It was really good. And so now I'm figuring out there's all these different coffee shops, and that can be a tough choice. You know, my wife comes in every morning, and she says, hey, what can I get you for breakfast? And 
You know, my follow-up question is usually, well, what's there to eat? And she'll go through the menu. There's hash browns and eggs and bacon or waffles, and she can do churro waffles or white chocolate chip waffles or uh, any other kind of waffles or pancakes. I mean, and you know, my wife is a great cook. And so I'm listening to this, and I'm like, ah, which. So I got to the point where I said, you know what? You pick, I'll eat, and we'll go with that. <laughs> and so that's what happens now. So each and every day we're faced with some tough choices, but I would submit to you that every single day the toughest choice that you're going to face is this. Do I live this day in the flesh or in the spirit? In fact, many times throughout the day you're going to encounter that question. You're going to come to a scenario in life where your flesh wants to go this way and the spirit is saying go this way and you're stuck in a moment of decision where you got to say, what do I do here when the toast is burnt, <laughs> whether at home or at the restaurant? How do I respond to this? Uh, you'll face that choice when you see the price at the gas pump. So it went up to five sixty nine today for diesel. Man, I'm about to be six bucks a gallon on that. And so... When you come up to that gas station and you see that and you've got the I did that stickers in your back pocket, you've got a choice to make. Do I stick it on there or do I suck it up and deal with it? And so there are options there. You face that choice when a coworker brings up that sensitive topic again or when your boss comes down hard on you. There's the I did that sticker. I see it. And then, or when a, when a guy decides to take your phone and smash it on the ground, that's not cool. You, in that moment, the flesh is saying, do one thing, and the spirit is saying, do another thing, and you've got to decide what you're going to do. You have been given that choice. And so every single decision of life is ultimately going to come down to this. Do I live after the flesh or do I live after the spirit? The Apostle Paul is teaching the Galatians here about the powerful gift of the Holy Ghost. That when you get saved, Jesus moves into your life and he also gives you the comforter, as it's called in John. And, and he's going to give you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into truth. And he's going to correct you and he's going to convict you and he's going to speak to you. And it gives you that powerful gift. And what his purpose is in your life is to make you righteous and holy in this sinful world. And to do so in spite of the fact that you still have this sinful flesh that wants to go its own way. He's there to combat it. And what he's been teaching here, especially in verses 16 and 17 thus far, is that within each and every one of us is this battle between the Holy Spirit and the flesh and that they are contrary one to another and they butt heads and they duke it out to keep you from doing the things the other part of you wants to do. The flesh keeps you from doing what the Spirit wants you to do, but the Spirit can also help you keep you from doing what the flesh wants you to do. And so that's how he works in your life. And the reason why is because Jesus has given you that choice. He's freed you, freed you from the bondage of your flesh, freed you from the bondage of your sin nature. Yes, you still have it. It's still present. But before you had Christ and before you had the Holy Spirit, you would just naturally go the way of the flesh. But it no longer has to be that way because you have the Spirit. 
Paul has been pleading with the Galatians here, and ultimately God is pleading with us today. And his plead is to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And the question is this, why should you choose to live after the Spirit rather than living at the, after the flesh? And the truth is, over the next three weeks, we're kind of kind of be unpacking this one by one. And this week, I want to focus on this thought. Why should you not live after the flesh? What are the reasons behind that? And so that's what we want to consider tonight as we look at our text. Let me show you, first of all, that living after the flesh, whether or not you are living after the flesh, is going to manifest itself in the works of the flesh. And what he says in uh, verse number 19 is now the works of the flesh are manifest. That word manifest, it means that they are visible, they're evident, they're clear to the eye is what the literal translation would be. And so what he's saying is this, that when you live after the flesh, it's going to be evidenced in your life through the works of the flesh coming out. What are the works of the flesh? Well, he tells us which are these And the works of the flesh, he's going to categorize here really into four contexts. And the first is going to deal with sexual sins. It says in verse 19, adultery. Of course, adultery would be a sexual relationship uh, for a married person with somebody that's not their spouse. And so that's obviously a big time problem. And then he says fornication and fornication has to do, it's really the most general word for sexual sins of all kinds. Anything that's outside of God's design. Well, what's God's design? One man for one woman for one lifetime in a covenant of marriage. That's God's design. So that means everything outside of that is fornication, including one night stands, high school hookups, college hookups. It includes uh, moving in together and living in and figuring out the situation before committing to marriage. That's not God's plan. That's what the Bible calls fornication. Um, It would also include things like prostitution. It would include self-pleasure. It would include homosexuality as well. Again, it's anything that is outside God's prescribed plan for that relationship And the only time that he says it's honorable is in marriage. That's the only time. And then he gives this word uncleanness. Now, uncleanness in this context has to do with internal impurities. This is going to be talking more about the thoughts of the mind. And so obviously this would include pornography. This would also include uh, prolonged lustful looks at people. Um, It would include sinful fantasies, those things that are conjured up in the mind that may not literally be acted upon, but the thoughts are there and the flesh is dwelling upon them. What did Jesus say? You've heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whoso looketh upon a woman and lusteth after her in his heart hath committed adultery with her already. And so Jesus said, it's not just the physical act, it's what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your heart. Paul calls it uncleanness. That's a work of the flesh. And then he uses this word lasciviousness. Lasciviousness would be a word that we've kind of been using throughout this passage, the idea of licentiousness. The word itself would mean unrestrained, 
uncontrolled passion and desire. Uh, and, and so in this particular context, this would be talking about somebody who goes to any length to get what they want and they are unrestrained. They're not disciplined. They're out of control. And so this would include things like rape, incest, molestation, uh, those kind of things that are that where somebody is basically using somebody else. They're claiming to have a license to do whatever they want, whenever they want, with whomever they want. That's the idea of lasciviousness. And so if you here's the truth, if you are practicing any one of those things right now in your life, Paul says you are living after the flesh. That is a sign that the spirit is not in control, that the flesh is at large in your life, that he's doing whatever he wants to do and you're letting it happen. The second category here is going to deal with religious sin. In verse 20, it says idolatry. Now, idolatry, the, the literal translation there would be a figure, that the idea is that there's a figure or an image that you're setting up in the place of God and you're falling down and you're worshiping it. That's what idolatry is. Now, obviously, this would include uh, paganism in their day and time, but also the kind of paganism that takes place in our day and time. We're talking about New Age pantheism and worshiping the creature more than the creator. If we're talking about Buddhism, if we're talking about Hinduism, if we're talking about yoga and other things like that, that deal with meditation and reaching the divine within or bowing down before some other idol or performing some religious rite before some idol, of course, we know that's idolatry. But idolatry extends beyond just falling down before some image because what it really means is that you are setting up something in the place of God and you give more of your time, more of your effort, more of your energy, your care and concern to that thing than you do to God. <laughs> if somebody's going, in other words, if somebody's going to stay home and watch a sports event on their TV during a regular time of worship, they have set the sport up to be more important than the worship of God. That's idolatry. You might say the same thing about concerts, that you could put a celebrity, you could put a comedian, you could put a, a, uh, a musician or a singer, you could put them on such a pedestal that it's like, well, they're only in town this one time and it's on Sunday night. I know the church worships on Sunday night and I'm usually there, but God will be okay if it's just one time. Go to the Old Testament and tell me one time when God said it was okay for them to go to the Canaanite gods and bow down before them. That was not acceptable. See, I'm not talking about like it's wrong to go on vacation and it's wrong to go to sporting events. It's wrong to do those things. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. When you prioritize them over God, that is when it reaches into the realm of idolatry. It could be fishing, hunting, other types of hobbies, camping trips, just things where you just say, you know what? I can go worship God my own way to the neglect of worshiping God with, in his way. That would be classified as idolatry. Let me put it this way. Whatever there is in your life that you would refuse to surrender in obedience to God, that is an idol. That could be a relationship where you just say, you know what? 
I'm not, I, I know God doesn't want me to be with an unbeliever. His word is clear about that. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so I know that that's what God says, but I'm just not going to give up this relationship. That is worshiping that relationship more than you're worshiping God. And so it really goes in to a ton of areas of life. So suffice it to say, whatever you prioritize over God is an idol in your life. And when you are doing that, that is an indication that the flesh is in charge rather than the Holy Spirit. And then he says witchcraft, witchcraft. And so obviously that would be uh, talking about the cultic practices of Satanism, of wizardry, sorcery. I'm sorry, that would include stuff like Harry Potter. It would include stuff like the exorcist and the infatuation with with horror movies and darkness and pentagrams and studying uh, all the things that that really are representative of satanic and evil influence that would be the realm of witchcraft the word translator witchcraft though is actually the word pharmakia from which we get our word pharmacy the idea is that they mix these potions together in order to cast a spell or to alter the state of mind. In other words, it was their version of hardcore drugs. And, and so as you look at our day and time, that people are mixing chemicals together and they're shooting them up in needles and they're snuffing them in powder and they're smoking them in joints. And what it's doing is it's altering the mind. It's distorting their way of thinking and it's mixing these potions together that are ruining their minds. And so that's the idea here. And they would be used in the co context of wizardry and magic. And so what, the, what that's telling us tonight is that if you are hooked on drugs, if you're dabbling in Ouija boards, if you are obsessed with darkness and Satanism and demonic spirits, then that means that the flesh is in charge. Satan wants you to go into those things. He wants you to open that door so that he can move in. He can't possess you if you're a believer, but he can oppress you. And he will if you allow him to. And so he gives these religious manifestations of the flesh. The third context has to do with social sins, sins with a variety of relationships. He, he lists here hatred. That would obviously be animosity, hostility between a couple of individuals. And then he uses the word variance. This word variance would be a, a strife, a quarrel, or a rivalry. The, the literal meaning of it would be stimulated contention. It means that there's something going on between two people that is ruffling the feathers, that's upsetting the apple cart, and they are they're going off at each other. That's what it means here. I mean, think about like sibling rivalries. My kids, you know, they're three and six, and they've already figured out how to have a sibling rivalry. You know, they, who's going to be the favorite child? <laughs> Who gets to pray at dinner? And that can even become a fight at times over spiritual things. Who got the remote first to be able to watch the TV show that they want to watch? Or there might be one playing with a toy and the other one wants to play with that toy and they're fussing and fighting over it, even though there's all these other toys over there. You look at that and say, kids, that happens with adults too. You ever seen a good sports rivalry? 
they're coming out with a documentary about the late 90s, early 2000s avalanche versus Red Wings rivalry. And I can remember as a kid that all it took was one hit by one guy into a bench and it sent that thing into a probably a five year slate of bloodbaths, entire team brawls, you know, checks after the hit, skirmishes after, after the whistle and so you've got that going on. You've got goalies fighting and they're fussing and fighting over things. Why? Because they hate each other. And so this rivalry comes in. So one person hits somebody and then it brings a stimulated contention into the situation. That happens in our personal lives as well. There can be a rift between a husband and a wife or a rift between an adult child and their parents to where they don't talk for years. That's a manifestation of the flesh that the flesh is in control. He says, emulations. Think of that root word there to emulate. That when you emulate somebody, it means that you, you're trying to be like them. You're trying to look like them. You're modeling or patterning yourself after them. This is a word that, that has the idea of a passionate zeal for the qualities or the position that somebody else has. It has to do with jealousy that creates competition and a desire to be at an equal level with someone else. It's when a man would, uh, in, in the church would try to take charge over the pastor's leadership. It's when a wife would try to take charge over the husband's leadership. It's when the kids would try to overrun the parents. That what, when you can see this at work as well, that, that people try to attain to the level of somebody else and they get jealous of their position, they get jealous of their personalities. It's possible in ministry to get jealous of other people's church plants and how well it's going for them and how not well it's going for you. And so you can think the same thing as a preacher, that you could look at another preacher and say, I don't have the gifts and the talents that they have, and it can just get at your craw. It can upset you. Emulations here. Then he gives this word wrath. We've talked a little bit about this last week, that it means to boil up to the point of smoking. <laughs> That it means that something's coming up inside of you and it's boiling, it's boiling, it's boiling until boom, it explodes. We're talking about explosive anger. When a, a father might go off at his kids or when a little kid might go off at a school teacher or when a coworker might go off at the boss. I'm just talking about exploding in anger because things have been settled deep down inside and there's been bitterness, there's been resentment, and now it's coming out in anger, wrath. And then he gives this word strife. This is a word that's actually used in the context of the work environment. It literally means to strive forward. The idea is selfish ambition, selfish promotion, that is somebody who will put others down and crawl all over the top of them on their way up the corporate ladder. We see that happen at work. And so that's what the idea of strife is, this selfishness, making yourself look better. And then he gives the word seditions. And sedition means to, to pit people against one another, to cause dissension, to sow discord. Speaking in a church context that it's those who are gossiping and talking bad about somebody to try to turn a crowd away from an individual, whether in leadership or somebody that's in the membership. And so seditions. And then he uses the word heresies, which is a similar word that 
really means this, to create a click. You know, in high school, there were clicks. You got the jock click, and you got the punk click, and you got the goth click, and you got the cheerleader click. And so you've got all these different clicks going on at school. Well, that happens in churches as well. You can develop theological cliques. See, understand heresy is not just a false doctrine. It's the person who comes in with the false doctrine and tries to bring people over to himself. It's causing a schism and a division within the church. And so that's the idea of heresy. There could be a theological clique. There could be a social class clique and a racial class clique and a cultural clique. And so before you know it, you got an entire church that's more like six or seven tiny different churches inside one building and none of them like each other. That's heresy. And you know what Paul says? That's a work of the flesh. Anytime you come to a church and you see a massive division in the congregation that tells you this, that the church is full of people who are not living under the control of the Holy Spirit. There are people full, there is full of people who are living under the control of their flesh. And then he gives this word envyings. Envyings would be covetousness, another word for jealousy, but this time it's not of qualities, personality, or position. This time it's of possessions. That somebody can get envious of the nice car that somebody has or how big of a house they have or that their sales taxes are cheaper, things like that. I mean, just different possessions. They can look at a person's marriage and say their marriage is way better than mine and they want that kind of marriage in an envious way. And so he says that when you are looking at somebody else and you're discontented and you want what they want, that's a sign the flesh is in control. Well, these are all things that can destroy relationships. They can hurt people. They can ruin your social life. They can ruin your marriage. They can ruin your family. And they're all signs that you're living after the flesh. And so you've got to do an examination of your heart right now and say, when things go sour, do I have the tendency to boil up and explode? If that's true, then you know you're not walking in the spirit. You are living in the flesh. If you deal with the lustful things that we've talked about, if you deal with resentment, if you deal with hatred, variance, emulations, if you deal with dividing people up over things, then that tells you I've got a spiritual problem. My flesh is in charge and it's manifesting itself in this response. The fourth category here is drinking sins. He says in verse uh, 21, I, I missed murders. We obviously know what that means. Premeditated killing. That'll strain a relationship. <laughs> Anyways, and the drunkenness, the intoxication, obviously. And then it gives the word revelings. And when you look this up, just to be blunt, what it says is that it would be drunken orgies is what it's talking about. That it's when, I mean, you, you think of the night scene, the downtown scene, the bars, the, the uh, nightclubs, the block parties, the frat parties that are so prevalent over here on the hill that you've got these parties where there's so much consumption of alcohol and so much consumption of drugs and hallucinogenics and all of those things that these parties spiral downward into nakedness and lewdness and perversion. And all that comes out of that is horrific. And he says that if this is how you spend your nights, if this is how you spend your weekends, 
then you know you are living after the flesh. When you boil this all down into these different categories, what we find is this, is that the works of the flesh devalues marriage. It really devalues marriage in society. It defies worship. It destroys relationships and it dilutes morality. The works of the flesh do nothing but destroy. That's a pretty descriptive list that he gives there. It's not an exhaustive list because he throws in there and such like. Whatever else you can think of that would fall under these categories, you could throw that in there too. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a typical list of those who live after the flesh. In fact, look what he goes on to say at the end of verse 21. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You don't know what the Apostle Paul is saying there? He's saying that the works of the flesh are the identifying marks of unbelievers. You consider all those things that we just talked about. And those are things, or let me ask this. Are those things that look like they belong in a church? Are those things that look like they belong in the life of a believer? Absolutely not. They actually look more reminiscent of the people who fill our streets and our cities and they, they live after the works of the flesh. And the reason why is because they're lost. They're without Christ. They're not saved. They don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives to combat the works of the flesh. And so they just go after their fleshly pursuits. So here's the question then. If these are the works of the flesh that are manifested in the lives of those who are without Christ, bound in their sin, and without the Holy Spirit, then why should any of these things be manifested in the lives of those who have been freed by Christ and do have the Holy Spirit? And so the point that we're supposed to get here is this, that you should not live after the flesh or you'll end up living for what you've been liberated from. Do you catch that? That when you allow, when you go into living after the flesh rather than living under the control of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to go and you're going to act upon these very works of the flesh that he gives, which he says are manifestations of those who are not believers. In other words, you're going to come, you've been brought out of this wicked place by Jesus Christ, and you're going to go right back into it. And so if you live after the flesh, you're going to find yourself living for the things you've been liberated from. You'll be right back where you came from. Jesus came to free you from this fallen condition. You see, before you get saved, all you have is your fleshly nature. There's nothing you can do about it. That means that Naturally, you're going to live after the appetites of your flesh. And what Paul is saying is that these manifestations of the flesh are characteristic of sinful, pagan, unredeemed people. I mean, think about it. They live for unrestrained sexual pleasures. They idolize the creature more than the creator. They turn to drugs. They turn to pharmaceuticals to numb the pains of life and to give them the greatest highs. They live selfishly at the expense of others. They're full of hatred rioting, reveling, heresies, 
That doesn't just take place in a church. That takes place on the streets. That takes place in the government and in the White House and in the Capitol. Heresies and seditions. There's bitterness. They take innocent life. They live for the party atmosphere and drink themselves silly. Now, let me balance this and to say this, that not every person who is unsaved is a wretched, immoral person. Because the truth of the matter is, is that there are a lot of unbelievers. There are a lot of even atheists who live pretty quiet, peaceful and moral lives. They have moral standards in their lives. They are faithful to their wives or their husbands. They are good parents to their children. They do give back to the community and they give to charity and they don't live selfishly. And so I don't want to, I don't want you to be under the perception. I'm not so naive to think that there's no unsaved people out there that don't, that live a godly life or a good life. I should say there are many people that do, but generally speaking, when you consider the unredeemed, the unsaved, they have no problem manifesting these very works of the flesh because the flesh is all they have. But thank God that Jesus came and that he died on the cross and he paid the price for their sin so that if they would come to trust in him and acknowledge him as their savior and repent of their sin, then they will find forgiveness, salvation and redemption. And Jesus will give them the Holy Spirit so that now they have the Holy Spirit to combat those works of the flesh so that it can purify their lives and turn, turn uh, or make faithful, uh, make faithfully righteous saints out, out of uh, fleshly, riotous sinners. The Holy Spirit can do that. It's amazing. And so to those of us who are saved tonight, if Christ has liberated you from the power of your flesh and he has given you the Holy Spirit, then why would you live for something you've been liberated from? He didn't, he didn't save you and he didn't liberate you just so that you could go back and live like you're unforgiven. No, he's equipped you and his intention is for you to no longer live like you're unforgiven and fallen, but to live like you're forgiven and redeemed. That's his plan for your life. And so the solution then is to stop living after the flesh and start living after the spirit. You've been given the choice. Jesus gave that to you. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in verse 16, this I say, then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That means you now have a choice and that choice has been granted by Jesus Christ. And so whenever sexual temptation comes your way and this battle begins to rage and you feel it in your mind and in your heart that the spirit is saying, don't do this. And the flesh is saying, do this, that you have the power through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to say, no, I am not going to look at that. I'm not going to be with this person. I'm not going to go to that place. You can fight it with Christ in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. When, when you are tempted to go back to pagan practices and pagan ways of, uh, of thinking in your life, rather than letting your flesh take you back into the prison of paganism, let the spirit lead you into the liberty of Christ. You don't have to go back. When, you, when your flesh starts to rear its ugly head in your life and you're tempted to go off on your boss and the spirit comes saying, should you say that? Should you do that? Should you respond that way? You know what you have the power to say? Nope. 
I'm not going to go after the flesh. I'm going to follow the Holy Spirit. See, where we get into trouble is what happens is you can get to the place where you're so bent on living after the flesh that the Spirit comes and he speaks and he speaks and he speaks and you stiff arm him over and over again. And it can get to the point where he says, "Okay, I'll let you go your fleshly way. And then what you'll find is you'll end up living your life for the things that Christ has liberated you from. But the opposite is true, that when the flesh is raging and the spirit comes to fight and you yield to the Holy Spirit and then it happens again and again and again and again, then before you know it, the things that had your mind gripped and consumed no longer have a hold on you because you've developed the habit not of yielding to your flesh, but of yielding to the Holy Spirit. And it makes that kind of difference in your life. When selfishness would take you, to talk, would like you to engage in the dog-eat-dog world of corporate America, go ahead and put them down to make yourself look better. Go ahead and fudge these numbers in order to get your bonus and make your numbers look better. And the Spirit comes and says, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus have you to talk to them? How would Jesus have you to fill out this report that when the Spirit speaks, you've got to respond to Him? But if you'll develop a pattern of responding to the spirit, you'll break away from the pattern of responding to the flesh and you'll find victory and you'll find that in your life. What do you know? Out of nowhere. Things that were so sinful and gripped me before don't have nearly the same pull. They've kind of worked. They've kind of purged me of that. The Holy Spirit has moved and. Now I'm more righteous now. And it's not a pride thing, but you can just look at your life and you can look at the works of the flesh in your life. And before you know it, you start checking these things off or scratching them out. Well, that's not in my life anymore. And that's not in my life anymore. And that's not in my life anymore. And before you know it, you're living righteously in this life and you're a good testimony at your church, you're a good testimony at work, to your family and in this community. Why? Because you're not living under the power of the flesh, but under the power of the Holy Spirit. There's obviously so much application that we could go into, but I think that you get the point here. That if you've been liberated from the power of your flesh and now you have been given the Holy Spirit, don't live after your flesh or you'll end up living for what you've been liberated from. Some might object and say, you know what, that sounds easy and all, but what I find is my flesh is way stronger than the Spirit. And I don't know if I can ever get victory over this. Well, can I say this? Jesus knows that. And he knew that you would fall short. And he knew that you wouldn't be perfect even after he saved you. And that's why when he died on the cross, he died to forgive every sin in your life, past, present, and future. He knew you couldn't do it on your own. So he came and did it for you. The Bible says that he was in all points tempted like as we are and yet without sin. When Jesus was led into the wilderness by the spirit to fast and pray, Satan showed up. And Satan tempted him to live after the flesh by turning stones into bread when God had called him up there to fast. And Satan told, tempted him that if you will fall down and worship me. You've got the lusts, 
of the flesh. You've got the religious fleshliness. If you'll fall down and worship me, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can have the crown without the cross. And Satan told him that he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, if you'll jump off here in the sight of all the people, you can also have the people without the pain. But you know what Jesus did? He denied himself. He denied the flesh, that part of him that would desire not to go to the cross, that part of him that would desire not to suffer that excruciating death. He battled with it and he denied his flesh even in the garden of Gethsemane as he was praying before his father, sweating as it were great drops of blood and crying out, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he went to the cross and he paid the price for your sin so that if you would trust in him, he can free you from the works of the flesh and he can give you the Holy Spirit so that rather than being bound by your flesh, you can live freely by the spirit. He knew you would fall short. So he did what it took to do it on your behalf. And now he promises to break you free of that fleshly nature. And he gives you the Holy Spirit to make you righteous in a way the law never could. And he can take this list of the works of the flesh and erase them from your life. And so when you're facing those tough day-to-day choices of life, when you're facing the anger when you're facing the lust, when you're facing the temptation to mess with those numbers, whenever you come to it, don't live after the flesh. Because if you choose to live after the flesh, you'll find yourself down the road living for the things that Jesus freed you from. But if instead, and we'll see this more in detail next week, You'll live in the spirit. Look at the end of verse 23. Against such, there is no law. There's no law that can accomplish righteousness in your life when compared to what the Holy Spirit does in not only erasing the works of the flesh, but giving you the fruit of the spirit. And we'll consider what that is next week. Father, thank you for the.